This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Nightmares and Dreamscapes, a Stephen King adaptation podcast. I'm Joe Lipset, and I am resurrecting this bitch with Terry Menard. <laughs> Hi, Terry. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I do feel like this has been put into the pet cemetery and has come back all wrong. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. You and I have had a couple of opportunities to come back and talk about some Stephen King adaptations, but we didn't particularly care for things like Firestarter. So we thought, you know what? Why don't we hedge our bets on a documentary? Because folks were talking about Daphne by Weir's King on Screen, which is literally the exact same premise as this here podcast, Terry. Oh, it is. Does that does that mean we need to like like a reenactment of Stephen King movies in the beginning? Is that what we need to do? Okay, folks, we're going to lay this on the table. If you've been following me, at least on social media, you know that I was not a fan of this documentary. Terry, how are you feeling about things? Okay, so there's <laughs> there's two things. There's two things. One, I just okay. want a little I have a little story. Sure. On my previous, one of my previous jobs, there was like this wall and there was a lot of photos on this wall of people Mm -hmm. that used to be contracted to come and offer their opinions on things. And if you look at this wall, you will notice that there is a lot of, a lot of similarities in these pictures. They're all white. Mm -hmm. They're all cis, Mm -hmm. presumably straight and men. Okay. And we would call it the wall of of old white men and (laughs) i am watching this movie and i'm like i know that the pool of directors for stephen king movies Mm -hmm. includes mostly old white men correct but but it does not look very good (laughs) when you are covering stephen king's adaptations and it's nothing but old white men i'm sorry but licking his butt Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so folks, the general premise of this is we're just reuniting the quote-unquote creatives behind the various like 50-plus Stephen King adaptations. So it crosses cinema as well as TV and miniseries. And you're right, Terry. Yeah, it's predominantly middle to older white men so we've got frank darabont we've got tom holland mcgarris taylor hackford uh vincenzo natale we've got greg nicotero and lewis teague mike flanagan yeah yeah it's 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 a i mean it's it's an impressive list of people let's let's Mm -hmm. be honest for a lot of these people it's an impressive list to go through and have a conversation about Mm -hmm. his work yeah But what you probably notice from that list and from Terry's intro is, yeah, this is all men. So, like, by making the executive decision to focus exclusively on directors or writer-directors of Stephen King properties, we basically limited the pool of people who can talk on the subject to just one group of people. And yes, it is the dominant majority, 
but it also it's so visually obvious that i can't believe in 2022 23 that no one took a look at this and said you know what we've got to expand the scope of this we either need to talk to actors or we need to bring in some other folks like maybe some critics or something like that because it just like you can't fucking do this in this day and age just have a wall of white men on a documentary We've seen this before, and we have complained about this numerous times. Looking at you, In Search of Darkness, the oh. the various like oh. 80s documentaries on horror, like this is a real big problem in horror documentaries in particular. We often have exclusively white men, and you just don't have to do it. Like you don't have to. There was a conscious choice made. And we talked offline, but and you wondered this, and I wondered this as well as I was watching it. I was like, because I was sitting there, and I was like, okay, yeah, okay, there's a lot of a lot of white men on here. And I was thinking, has there been adaptations by women? And there have. I mean, we had uh, Mary Lambert with mm-hmm. Pet Cemetery, and Kimberly Pierce, who directed uh, Carrie, right? She directed yep. the Carrie adaptation. So, I mean, we have... <laughs> Two women. (laughs) (laughs) But what's weird about this, Terry, is that I'm looking through some of the former press releases, and I'm not sure if there was a change made at any point, or maybe if they're just thinking, okay, if we use archival footage from things like the set of misery or award ceremonies or something like we're sneaking women into the proceedings. Because we do see people like Kathy Bates on here, Mm, right? Because she's in Dolores Claiborne as well as Misery. We do see Dee Wallace uh, from the set of Cujo and these kinds of Mm -hmm. things. But they are not talking heads in the documentary, which is what 98% of this is composed of. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's baffling, Terry. Like, it's legitimately... I just... I was sitting there and I'm like... At some point, someone's going to say something, right? Or even like, we tried to get these two women and they were not there. Because it's not like they get all of the directors who have ever worked on this, right? Like, they get a couple of the big ones. They get a lot of folks who have done at least two different adaptations, I think, because they wanted their vantage point from what was different from the first to the second one, even though they never really actually addressed that. But I got the impression that they, they tried to cast a broad net for folks but it just also feels like the minute you can't get the two female directors you have to change yeah yeah i i you know and i was thinking what about like producers what about actors what about critics as you mentioned like there are Mm -hmm. there are ways that you could have had additions to this i mean i get the interest in having directors on but i'll be perfectly honest some of the directors didn't really add anything whatsoever Mm -hmm. like their name popped up they said something brief and then we never really covered their adaptations we never really covered anything of substance for them and so i was like okay you have like this this whole motley crew of people but like we really just focused on mike flanagan which makes sense frank Mm -hmm. darabont which also makes sense and tom holland which also kind of makes sense too but like i get that those are like the big ones but you have a whole list of people, like the people that that um did the remake of Pet Cemetery, they were here. Or um, Josh mm-hmm. Boone. We had a little bit more of what Josh Boone, who directed the unfortunate The Stand that we covered as well. Yep. 
even the, like the the one director who did Cell, which is a universally hated Stephen <laughs> yeah. King adaptation, he's all over this. Yeah. And admittedly, he's very eloquent. You know, I, I do actually think he's got some interesting things to say. Sidebar, he's actually very hot, so I didn't mind it. Mm. But yeah, some of the decisions were very perplexing. Like, I was constantly amazed that we didn't really talk about what makes a good King adaptation and what doesn't. Yes. So when I, when I was starting out with my introduction, that was the other thing that, that popped in my head by the Mm -hmm. end of this adaptation, I kept thinking, all right, so what's the through line here? I don't really see we're jumping forward. We're jumping back. Mm -hmm. It's not chronological. We we start with Carrie. So I thought, okay, we're going to start with Carrie and we're going to sort of work our way through maybe by decade or something like that. And it's like, no, we're we're jumping all over the place. We're jumping from Mm -hmm. film to TV to miniseries, but not all of them. No, and we're going back in time. We're going forward in time. I was like, I'm looking for a through line to like stick to of what is the, mm-hmm. what is the purpose of this documentary other than lavishing praise on a very good writer, but again, lavishing praise. And when we get to the yeah. very end, there's this last scene and it's like, I think it's like the last five minutes of the movie. And I believe it was Frank Darabont. I wrote the quote, but I did not have who was attributed to. I believe it was him though. And he says, you have to be bold in the sense of, of the material, but bold in adapting it. So we're focusing on the screen, not the page. And I was like, okay, mm. right there. <laughs> yeah. Right that there. That's the whole premise of this documentary. <laughs> right there would have been interesting. But then again, if you were to go into what does and does not work, you would have to talk about some of the films that did mm-hmm. not work as an adaptation in this, besides the one made by the famous dead man. Stanley Kubrick, who is the only film that they all shit on and they shit on it. Well, I mean, not all of them. There were a couple of people that said, oh, I liked it, but I didn't want to tell King that. Mm-hmm. But I think the problem is, is that a lot of these people are friends of Stephen King. And so it's yeah. just basically like, and they're not going to be honest about certain things. Look, let's be honest. Not every single adaptation works. I love Mick Garris, but not every single one of his adaptations work. <laughs> No, I I love that, you know, the first credit he gets, because when people who have directed multiple titles show up, they put, you know, their name and then they put in brackets their adaptations. And the first one they do for Mick Garris is always Sleepwalkers. And I'm like, not talking about that one, not showing us any clips of that one. <laughs> no, we, we sure are. We're, we're going with The Stand and The Shining. Yeah, it, it was very unusual because we get to the shining relatively early like we start with carrie but we basically just say oh it's um you know it's kind of the one that starts everything and it's so well done and people really liked it and then basically by that point the credits of this documentary have ended and we don't talk about carrie again (laughs) and de palma is nowhere to be seen so clearly we could not get him yeah and I do think it's important to note that this was that this started as a Kickstarter. So this is like a crowdfunded project. This is mm-hmm. obviously a passion project for Daphne by Weir. So I can see that that kind of love. I as much as I thought the opening was cringy, where it was like basically kind of It's her. Yeah. It's her. And it, it's sort of cringy in that we're, we're sort of like going through all of King's stuff. I was appreciative of some of the deep cuts in the, the Easter eggs that were on screen. Like mm-hmm. there was a coffee cup from Gotham Cafe, which is one of my favorite of Stephen King's short stories. There's in the Tallgrass Barber. Right. Um, there's like a covered car, I believe, from the Buick Gate is the is the inference there. So there's like mm-hmm. a lot of 
a lot of little tiny things from some relatively deeper cuts that sure. aren't like Pennywise or The Stand yeah. or something like that. And so I did appreciate that. Yeah, no, I definitely appreciated that too. My big issue was that it's like, I think three or four minutes long. Oh, it's longer than that, Joe. It is at least six minutes. I was just like, okay, this feels self-indulgent. Like as somebody mm -hmm. who is self-professed, not the biggest Stephen King fan, like read maybe 50% of his stuff, seen maybe 50% of the adaptations. This felt so self-indulgent for me. I was like, oh, cool. We're literally just naming as many Stephen King things as we possibly can. And maybe that was a sign of who the intended audience for this is. As you said, it's a passion project that is probably intended for Stephen King enthusiasts. But I think it's important to acknowledge that you have a bias in a documentary and if you're going to open it by literally including yourself and all of these homages, and then you go on to basically make a wank fest where you're not actually interrogating what makes a good adaptation, what doesn't, you're not including different representation of people who have made these films, you're randomly focusing on certain titles but not others, like, I just... I ended up with so many questions about the construction and the motivations and the behind the scenes details. And that's what I'm walking away from the documentary with. Like I didn't glean a ton of insight about why so many of these adaptations have been made apart from the fact that people really like Stephen King, which I already knew. Yeah, I think that that actually is kind of the problem here. There's a lot, there's a lot of BTS in terms of what people were talking about. But for the most part, it's all surface level things that you could find by doing a Wikipedia search or a simple mm -hmm. Google search. Like there was nothing really in deep. The only part that was really, for me, enthralling was when Frank Darabont was talking about shooting the Green Mile. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed some of the kind of back and forth with like, talking about how Tom Hanks is... Uh, oh, he stayed on the set all the time. Stand on the set, giving himself forward, all that kind of all that kind of stuff. I was like, okay, this is interesting. I mean, granted, it's Tom Hanks. He's like America's sweetheart. Everyone right. loves him. So like, it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me that it's this is shocking. how he is on... No. <laughs> but also, I was like, this is kind of the details I liked. I liked the little BTS they did of, of Stephen King on the set of that, getting the, you know, birthday cake and everything. I was like, this is kind of interesting mm -hmm. stuff that I feel is less dry than a lot of the talking head stuff that we are presented with. Right. And I don't want to make it seem like these men had nothing of interest to offer. It's just that so many of them felt like they were saying a lot of the same things, you know, like, mm -hmm. oh, the reason Stephen King works for people is because he focuses on characters and he he makes them so real and he doesn't mm -hmm. set it in big cities. He sets it in small towns. So it's really relatable. And I was like, OK, but this is Stephen King. I thought we were talking about the adaptations like I know yeah. that they go hand in hand, but so much of it. To me, as someone who's like not thoroughly invested in that, a lot of it felt like it was more about the books and less about the actual films or TV properties that come out of them. Like, I was actually really, really hoping we were going to talk about the struggle. And you're right, I think it is Frank Darabont who says, you know, it's really hard to take a 600 page book and turn it into like a two hour movie. Like, you're going to have to cut some things out. 
but it comes at the end of this documentary. Like, yep. to me, that was the interesting discussion. And I would have loved to even, even if we're going to praise King for all the great things he's done, I would have loved to have heard more about their struggles with why do I pick this film at this time? Or how does it work when I do it as a limited series? It just felt like there were so many interesting questions, more interesting questions that could have been posed yeah. that would have offered more revelations or more keen insights into why this is the most adapted horror author of all time. Yeah. So there were there were moments of that that I thought were really interesting. I really liked, again, going back to Frank Darabont, since mm -hmm. this was basically the Frank Darabont show. Honestly, it's him, Flanagan, Holland, and Garris. You're right. Yeah. And so there's that that moment where he like talks about wanting to adapt Shawshank and he knew that he wasn't a capable enough writer to tackle mm -hmm. that yet. So like he waited. I was like, OK, that's an interesting insight. I wanted to yeah. hear more about that. And I was like, there could have been more questions asked about that. I thought even though I did not know, well, neither of us liked the, the new Stan adaptation. Um, I did think that Josh Boone's comments about wanting to not tell it in order and, and not replicate the original the stand in some mm -hmm. way and keep it surprising in ways like okay that's an interesting insight i want more uh, because it just ends there uh, to me yeah. i'm like okay that is the jumping off point and then we're gonna have a whole conversation about how you felt that went and instead he says that and he's like yeah you know some people have said that uh you know it's kind of like a trump-like figure and then we just move on we just like, move on who, who is fielding these interviews because there are juicy nuggets in here, but we're not following up on them. Who's not asking the exactly the follow up questions that will dig into something that is more interesting. And mm -hmm. I appreciate it because Josh Boone was also he also mentioned that he was raised by people who believed the rapture was coming and about how right. his family had turned to evangelical Baptist, Southern Baptist. And all of a sudden, the things that he was loving, like Stephen King books were, you know, verboten in the house. And I like mm -hmm. the comment that he says, King gave me a counter myth. I was like, Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. Tell me more. But no, mm -hmm. we don't. Because <laughs> that was the other kind of area I thought we might start to go into. We broach a couple of different consistent themes that King tends to write on that mm -hmm. a lot of the adaptations therefore focus on right like we touch a little bit on religion we talk a little bit about sort of working class families and this kind of stuff yeah and again i just couldn't help but wonder why didn't we organize the doc then around how different properties tackle those different subjects or how they've changed across time like how they changed across time like stan versus stan why would you not have said like how does one differ from the other and um, what does that say about King's mythology? I guess I, I do want to circle back because I feel like I've been really negative this whole time. I did really find a lot of value in the recognition of the role that Tabitha King played in King's career. Yes, yes. I wish we could have tied that into female characters on film and TV a little bit more. Like they, I think they focus in on Dolores Claiborne, but Taylor mm -hmm. Hackford just uses it as an opportunity to praise himself because he fooled somebody who thought he was a woman oh i was like yeah. good for you buddy i like that movie but this is not endearing me to you right now <laughs> no it wasn't i because i also like that movie i and here's the thing i am a huge fan of stephen king like i am much more of a fan of him than you are i oh, have yes. 
read pretty much everything that he has done. I am not a huge fan of most of his adaptations. We've talked about this plenty of times because I feel that his adaptations might hit the plot points, but kind of miss the themes that Stephen right. King was exploring and the inter- mm-hmm. interiority of the characters. So there's a we have a lot of that. And I was primed. I'm the kind of prime person that would be that this doc I would think would be made for. And mm-hmm. yet whenever we do touch on subjects like Stephen King's portrayal of of women and the fact that his wife would provide, you know, inputs into it or the fact that he was raised in a blue collar family by a single mom. And so he like all that kind of stuff is interesting. But mm-hmm. a this is not a Stephen King right. documentary. This is an adaptation documentary. Yes. And I can understand some of that setting the scene for it. But really, I'm more interested in, OK, Stephen King wrote this great character. How are you going to adapt that for screen? Right. And I would have liked to hear more of that type of aspect mm-hmm. of it, of like personal stories about the writers going into how they how they would frame it, how they would cut stuff out, how they would decide what was important mm-hmm. to keep. Like, that's the kind of stuff that I was hoping to get in here. Yeah. Or how do we capture the world of Stephen mm-hmm. King? Like, it felt like so many of them were content to say, oh, well, he does middle America stories with regular folks. And then they just kind of left it at, oh, okay, so that covers all of the world building we did, except for folks like Darabont, where he says, yeah, let me talk to you about shooting on a prison set and how that's a hard sell to movie audiences. Like, yeah, there's these little moments. And the problem is, is that when those little moments happen, they just highlight all the other things that the doc is apparently not interested in doing. And they make you wish that that's what the doc was actually about. Yeah. I did appreciate, again, these little nuggets like um, Vincenzo talking about how he was part of the first generation of kids exposed to Stephen King. Mm-hmm. And then Josh Boone following that up by saying, I knew his logo for his name before I could read. And that if he got you when you were young, he got you for life. And I do think that a lot of that is is true, particularly for male audiences in particular. Mm-hmm. But like, but again, that's about the books. <laughs> it's not exactly, exactly. <laughs> I just feel that this is a documentary that there's probably good footage here, but this is a documentary in need of some kind of, as I mentioned earlier, some kind of through line, something that kind of pulls it together. Because I Mm -hmm. I feel like as it is, it's just literally people. I mean, you said it a wank fest. Let's let's be honest that in in the most pejorative way, that is kind of what this is. Yeah, we either needed a through line, like a a central argument that we could wrap this around to give it a little bit of structure. We maybe needed a little bit of conflict and acknowledge that some of these are better than others and what makes them work and get people on the record as saying like, not all of these are equal. And let's talk about why. And I think that could have come out from properly talking about how do you adapt someone as complicated as King and, you know, given the wide birth of stories that he tells. I will say I do think Mick Garris gave one of the more candid responses in terms of when he was talking about um, adapting The Shining. And I was like, this is something I'm, I was actually more curious about because mm-hmm. as famous and as I think well known as Kubrick's The Shining is, it's not a Stephen King adaptation to me. And I think right. that this this documentary kind of explores that a little bit. And I was like, okay, that's mm-hmm. interesting. It kind of sucks that this is the only movie that you're poo-pooing. Right. With the dead director. <laughs> With the dead director who can't defend himself or anything. Mm-hmm. Like, not that he would. I don't think Kubrick no. would have <laughs> anything to do with this. Kubrick would not have come on that. 
<laughs> no, no. But I did appreciate Mick talking about how Stephen King wanted to do something closer to his book and then says uh, that once people started hearing there's a shining for television and by the guy who directed Critters 2, how could that be good? I was like, okay, this is digging mm-hmm. into something that is I have said this. I was like, as much as I love, I love Critters too, but I was like, Mick Garris, not necessarily the choice I would have to direct The Shining. It's also on TV, broadcast TV in the 90s. So it's Mm -hmm. not like TV now that could, well, I mean, even the stand now, it wasn't that great. But anyway, (laughs) but I love the little anecdote that he says where King was drinking when he wrote the book and he was dry when he wrote the screenplay. So it gives it a new perspective. Okay. I was like, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Tell me more. Yeah. And we don't. No, no, we don't. Yeah, it's either there's no interesting kernels or they're there, but they go unpopped. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't help but wonder, like, maybe if we had have had different kinds of people, we would mm-hmm. have gotten different kinds of stories, different kinds of insights. But folks, you may feel like Terry and I are being a little bit dismissive because it's one entire group of people exclusively talking about this. But the reality is, is that when you watch the doc, you realize everyone seems to be saying a variation of the exact same thing. And it's because they all come at it from the exact same perspective, like not one black person. And I'm willing to bet you would have a different read on Stephen King. If you had a black creative in here somewhere. That is my biggest issue, not to keep harping on it, is the fact that this is very one note in terms of a lot of Stephen King friends and a lot of Stephen King fans who are just waxing poetic about their favorite person that they like to adapt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned it. A lot of these people are friends with Stephen King, and I don't know how objective you can be when you talk about oh we used to hang out at the bachelor pad with king or king would come and hang out on my movie set when we were shooting and so on like i just think that there's a little bit of conflict of interest and or we've got a bunch of people who don't want to say bad things about any of their colleagues work so they don't yeah yeah all right so i think at the end of the day i won't recommend this documentary any interesting things that you can think of that you would want to see in here you're probably not going to get because you probably already know it yeah it's definitely most i would say 90 percent maybe of the nuggets are things that fans of Stephen King's work would either know mm-hmm. or a quick Google search or Wikipedia search would would tell you. And that's that's the disappointing aspect of this. This is also not a recommendation for me. I really kind of wanted to like it, but it just mm-hmm. didn't do it until the last five minutes. <laughs> and it's long, too. It's just, This is yeah. not like a 75-minute documentary. This is like an hour and 45. <laughs> I mean, granted, it's actually about an hour and 39 once you get past the six-minute <laughs> intro. <laughs> oh, boy, that framing device. I cannot. <laughs> All right. Well, Terry, if people wanted to yell at you that you're wrong, and actually a panel of white men is a great target group to talk about stephen king how would they get in touch oh please come at me let's let's (laughs) let's discuss this i am cracking my my knuckles right now no um you can find me on whatever social media of choice right now at gaily dreadful and joe (laughs) if they want to recommend a book that will make you a stephen king fan for life Mm. how would they get in touch with you 
I would welcome those recommendations. Yes, I can be reached at B Storm My Remote, and that's the letter B. And we will also thank the Anatomy of a Screen Pod Squad Network for hosting the show as infrequently as it does pop up. But uh, yeah, Terry, I don't know. I know of at least one not quite Stephen King adaptation coming up, but we do have a future Pet Cemetery spinoff sequel. I don't know. Um, I'm curious about it. I'm going to be perfectly honest. I, but again, this is you're talking to someone who was a fan of the remake, and I, I, Ooh. I, yeah. Terry, Joe, <laughs> we we need to have a conversation about that one because I okay. think that that is a very good adaptation. Interesting. All of a sudden, <laughs> I'm excited to have that conversation with you down the line at some point. Then there you go. Okay. So well, yeah, I'm looking forward to this this prequel of sorts. Okay. Interesting, interesting. Well, uh yeah, folks, rest assured, we will we will come back with Nightmares and Dreamscape sometime in the future. Um but more likely you will hear us on Sexy and Surreal when that comes back for season two. So hang on, it's not too far away. Scream Pod Squad.